Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. sermon this morning is entitled God's Glory in Impossible Circumstances. We'll be looking at a portion of Isaiah 9. We are, of course, this month of October celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. October 31st, 1517 is the date we associate with it, with Martin Luther posting the 95 objections, the 95 points of debate concerning the sale of indulgences in particular and the way of salvation. And much of the joys and delights that we experience in Western civilization today are the direct result of the Protestant Reformation. The fruit and flower has gone far in every direction, and our lives are largely good and enjoyable because of so many things that have come to pass as a result of the Reformation going out and becoming a part and parcel of many people in their lives, and of government even. Last week, we looked at the reality that reform has always been a part of the church, God's kingdom. There have been needs for, and there have been reforms long before 1517. If you remember last week, we looked at good King Asa in Second Chronicles 14 and 15 and 16. In chapter 14, good King Asa is attacked by the Ethiopians from the south, and he's greatly outnumbered. And he calls upon God, and God comes in and marvelously and miraculously delivers him and the people of Judah. And everybody says, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And then in chapter 15, he brings about great reform. Brings about great reform of the one true religion of the God of Moses and of the Bible. And while that's very interesting to read in chapter 15, the irony of that is that it's just 18 years since the death of King Solomon. And there's been a great deal of misunderstanding in a very short period of time. They've gotten way off track and very quickly. But in chapter 15, he goes through the land and brings great reform. And you think, well, this is why they call him good King Asa, and it is. And then chapter 16, people from the north threaten him. Israel threatens him. The northern kingdom threatens him. And he's aware that, again, he's greatly outnumbered, but he does not remember that God delivered him from the Ethiopians. So he takes matters into his own hands. And he makes an alliance with a pagan king to the east of Syria, Ben-Hadad. And God sends a prophet to him and says, Don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember those Ethiopians and how they tried to come against you? And You were greatly outnumbered, and I delivered you. And then he says this to him, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And then he says, Because you didn't seek me, I'm going to let you have war for the rest of your life. You'll be engaged in battles the rest of your life. Good King Asa imprisons the prophet that sent him that message. Each of us must come to understand that not only is Reformation something that takes place in the course of the church, where there are highs in the church, there are lows in the church, and there's a need to get back right, it's also true for each of us in our own lives. Good King Asa in chapter 15 has a great high point of drawing near to God and strongly urging others to do the same. And then in chapter 16, he reaches a very low point even to the point of imprisoning someone who would come with a message from God. There is always need for reformation, both in the visible church 
and in our own hearts, and we need to be looking for that and understanding that. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's Word as we turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? This is a reference by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah of the great reformer, Jesus Christ the righteous. You recall that Isaiah is a prophet during the time of the destruction of the northern kingdom. He's a prophet in the southern kingdom. And his prophecy is fulfilled, and his prophecy primarily focuses on teaching and telling the people of the southern kingdom that they must draw near to God. Look to the people to the north, he says, and see what happens when we draw away from God. And yet God himself will come and write his law in our hearts. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless us now with ears to hear, that you would indeed bless this, the reading and hearing of your word. We acknowledge our own great and desperate need for individual and personal reformation, and certainly the need of the church at large as we look around and see so much foolishness and folly, so much idolatry, heresy, coldness of heart, atheism. God, our desire is that you would indeed rend the heavens and come down, that you would do a great shaking, that you would move in such a way that men would look to Christ and live And that you would do this in such a way that everyone declares this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. God, we ask that you would help us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The end of the passage that we just looked at, verse 7, the last phrase of this says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He's not anticipating that we're going to accomplish this. But God himself is going to accomplish this, that his kingdom will march on, it will expand, it will include who he wants it to include, and it will bring glory to his name. And that is happening, it has been happening, and it will continue to happen, even with the ups and downs of the church and the ups and downs of the individual saints. God will complete the work that he has begun to his glory. The reality is that as we think about The Reformation in 1517, we have to be mindful that back then, much like today, there was a monstrosity which was called the Established Church. And that is largely the case today, doing a lot of things and saying a lot of things that aren't in the Bible and aren't true of God. That was true in 1517, and that's largely true today. And while there had been a few people prior to Luther who acknowledged it, They had met with considerable opposition, and many of them had been executed. In Martin Luther's days in 1517, you would have to say it was overwhelming and against all odds. And that's why we are so delighted to recall that event of 500 years ago, because that's exactly what it was. The God of the universe bringing enlightenment and understanding and the rediscovery of justification by grace alone through faith alone to the man Martin Luther and then preserving him and allowing that to go forward, and the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, blessing it considerably. 
At the time of the great monstrosity that was the established church in 1517, there was a Lutheran monk who had already been to seminary and was now actually a professor in seminary. And he was reading his Bible. Reading his Bible, primarily in Latin, but reading his Bible. He was contemplating eternity while reading his Bible and aware of his sin. Listen to that again. Luther was contemplating eternity while reading his Bible and being aware of his sin. It's very difficult if you pull those three things together not to have some kind of a reaction to God. If you contemplate eternity, if you read your Bible, and if you have any transparency about your sin, you see the great need of a Savior. You see who Christ is and who God is, and that he is indeed. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. And Luther understood that. And the church of his day, full of heresy and misunderstanding, was dispensing salvation. Yes, the church thought they were dispensing salvation. They believed that they could dispense it in two ways. One, primarily what we call baptismal regeneration. And what they meant by that was simply this. If the church baptizes you in the name of the Trinity, you will end up in heaven almost certainly. Although you will get to heaven by way of hell. That was the teaching in 1517. You will get to heaven, but you will get to heaven by way of hell. They called temporary hell purgatory. If you only go to hell for a few thousand years, that's purgatory. And you get out. But purgatory is not a middle place between heaven and hell. Purgatory is hell. It simply has an end to it. You get out. And then you're released into heaven. That's what they taught. It's not in scripture. It wasn't true. But that's what Martin Luther had been raised to believe. But as he's reading his Bible he discovers it's not necessarily so. And that has been true again and again and again through the ages and perhaps in your life that as you read the Bible, you begin to realize that some of the things that you previously held to are not necessarily so. And the child of God earnestly desires to have his mind changed and to be conformed to what the scriptures teach regarding God and regarding us. The other false teaching of the day, of course, was the teaching that you could buy your way out of purgatory, or rather someone else could buy your way out of purgatory. And so in Martin Luther's day, there was a man named Tetzel, who was in Martin Luther's neighborhood, literally in his neighborhood, preaching that if you gave money to the church, your relatives would be released from hell, purgatory, and they would enter into everlasting glory. Martin Luther, contemplating eternity, reading his Bible, and aware of his sin, recognized that was not true. That was not true. Well, as we contemplate that, and we'll come back to that in just a moment, I just want to briefly remind you that that is a, a history in the kingdom of God. There has been, under the sovereignty of God, dark ages and enlightenments. There have been dark times and then better times. When the church first began to be established, for the first 300 years after the ascension of Christ, there was great persecution. And it was very difficult to be a Christian. And they were a tremendously small minority. And then Constantine, in 317, the emperor was received a uh, vision of some nature in which he believed that Christ was leading him to uh, not only victory in Christ's name, but actually to become a Christian. Whether or not that part becomes is clear or not, it's not really that important. The bottom line is that Constantine publicly professed faith in Christ. And Christianity was no longer illegal. It became legal in 317 and no longer persecuted. And then in 476, the Roman Empire fell. And when the Roman Empire fell, Europe was born. The individual city, the states that we think of, the various nations. Now Christianity took off all over those western kingdoms of Europe. But then great darkness came again with worldliness. And there was a downward spiral. And there were many, many, many years of darkness. Brothers and sisters, it would be very foolish to think that the 500 years since Martin Luther would be all full of just glory and reformation and salvation and worship of the one true God in spirit and in truth. No, since Martin Luther, the 500 years, there has been great difficulty. 
And we want to try to understand it today and then to respond to it appropriately today in our region, in the church, in our lives. There were glimmers of hope even prior to Martin Luther in 1517. The two names that most everybody knows already is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe died in 1384, but before he died, he translated the Bible into English, and he was trying to encourage people to read the Bible for themselves. That's why he translated it into English, because most people in England certainly couldn't read Latin. But the church thought that was such a bad idea that once they heard about it in that day, he had already died. But they thought this was a dreadful thing, and so they put him on trial after he was dead, convicted him as being a heretic, dug him up, and burned his body. Because he translated the Bible into English so that people could read the Bible while contemplating eternity, aware of their sin. John Huss, at the same meeting that they declared John John Wycliffe to be a heretic, they declared John Huss, a Bohemian priest, who also was calling for great reformation, they declared him to be a heretic and burned him at the stake as he was crying out against the considerable abuses of the church in his day. And so the point of reminding ourselves about that background is that when Martin Luther comes along just a hundred years after that, In 1517, he is aware that this could cost him his life. I told you just a few minutes ago that in the first 300 years of the church, there was great persecution. For most of the first 300 years of the church, there was great persecution. To be a Christian meant to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Christ, literally, until 317. Tertullian, writing in 254, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It had this wonderful effect of weeding people out, if you will. And so Martin Luther understood that. He understood that it was going to cost him everything. Some of you have met people, perhaps somebody from a Greek Orthodox background or a Jewish background or maybe a Muslim background. Some of you have met people before who were converted to Christianity and they realized upon being converted that it was going to cost them everything. They were going to now significantly separate from their genetic family and their previous culture. Most Christians in America have never had that experience. And so they don't really contemplate the idea of the cost that Martin Luther was contemplating at this time. But under the sovereignty of God, we realize that there is a remnant. We were just reading in Isaiah 10. Look in your Bibles in Isaiah. We were looking at Isaiah 9. Look in Isaiah 10. I want to read just a couple of verses to you to remind us of this reality of the little flock, a phrase that the Lord Christ uses in Luke 12. It has always been a little flock. There's been a lot of people sometimes in numbers, but it's always been a little flock of the genuinely converted of what's called the true church. Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 20, we read this. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord the Holy One of Israel, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, might be a lot of you, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. And so we see a theme that runs through the prophet Isaiah that not everybody talking about heaven is going there. It's a small group that will actually be converted. And we see the reality of that in Luke chapter 8 when he delivers the sermon, excuse me, the parable of the sower. And after giving the parable of the sower publicly, he goes back into the house privately with his disciples and his disciples ask him, what does this mean? And he specifically says, I speak in parables so that hearing they will not hear, and seeing they will not see. Because salvation is of the Lord. But to you, he says to the disciples, it has been revealed. And he explains the parable to them. It has always been a remnant. It has always been a little flock. And what a remarkable thing it is to see God blessing Martin Luther. And then for a season after that, many, many others following with the understanding and the rediscovery of the gospel. Back to our text in Isaiah 9, 
It says in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And that certainly was the case of Germany at that time. And it's certainly the case of America today. There is darkness today. And there is still from house to house, from church to church, there is still the light of the gospel going forward. There is great darkness and there is still light. And we want to acknowledge both of those things to be the case and recognize that where the light is, we want to draw near and pray for those who are in the light and to be encouraged. We want to hope in God. That's what verse 2 is saying. There is darkness, but hope in God. There are still some being saved. And then in verse 6, he says how it's going to happen. It's going to happen by the Messiah. It's going to happen by the Lord Christ. It's going to happen by the God of the universe becoming man. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Take just a moment and reflect once again upon these five titles. Or six titles, excuse me. The first one, of course, is the word Wonderful. His name is going to be called Wonderful. Some of you have been attending on Sunday night in the past know this. The word wonderful in Hebrew is the word pele. It's actually the word impossible. In Hebrew, it says his name will be called impossible. It's impossible to think that God would bring this about. How could he possibly do this? But the God of the universe becomes second Adam and then obeys his own law perfectly and then lays his own life down as a substitute for his people. It's impossible. It's the same phrase used in Psalm 18. This is the Lord's doing, and it is impossible in our eyes. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's his first title, impossible. The second one is counselor, the idea that God can figure things out. God can figure things out. God comes to good King Asa and tells him, I can do impossible things, and I can figure things out for you, and you don't need to take matters into your own hand, and you don't need to compromise and run next door to the pagan Syrians and make an alliance with them. You can just come to me like Jehoshaphat, your son, will do in a generation and call upon me and I will deliver you. God can figure things out. God could figure things out back then. He figured things out for Martin Luther and he's still figuring things out today for his children, for his church. And we must look to him. And then one of the titles of the Messiah is Mighty God. A son is going to be born and he's going to be called Mighty God. And virtually every Jewish person just recoils from that phrase. They don't like that phrase in here because they can't figure it out. Because he's going to be God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And Jesus is just that. And then also, not only is he going to be called Mighty God, but he's going to be called Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So God is going to marvelously and remarkably bring salvation to the remnant. For those who are walking in darkness, he's going to bring true worship to them again. And they'll be delivered, first of all, from themselves, and then delivered from their enemies. Remember, the gospel is God saving us by himself, from himself, for himself. Listen to that again. Memorize that. Know that. Use that in conversation. The gospel is God saving us by himself, from himself, for himself. And that's what happens in Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening again in 1517. God once again comes and brings light. Could God have brought light in 1516? And the answer is yes, of course. But in his perfect wisdom, he held out until 1517. And then once again, he plants the gospel. And as he plants it, it begins to take off by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, and it took off all over Western Europe and eventually came, of course, to America. There were impossible times in Israel in chapter 9 of Isaiah. There were impossible times in Europe in 1517, and there are seemingly impossible times today in the modern church in 2017. Luther was wrestling, and how few people today in the church wrestle. Luther was wrestling not looking to justify his preconceived notions, nor his current behavior, but to be right with God. 
He was wrestling, not looking to justify his preconceived notions. He wasn't reading the Bible to find out that what he already thought was right. He was reading the Bible to learn of God. To learn of God. In the movie A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson play officers in a trial regarding the death of a man. And during the trial, Lieutenant Caffey, Tom Cruise's character, says, I want the truth addressing Colonel Jessup. Colonel Jessup very famously looks back at him and says, you can't handle the truth. The child of God, the one seeking God, goes to the Bible and says, I want the truth. I want the truth about you, God. I want to understand you who destroyed the whole earth and saved only eight people. I want to know who you are and understand you. The one who called down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, but saved just a handful. I want to know who you are. The one who brought Israel out of captivity in Egypt and then destroyed Pharaoh's army. I want to know who you are. The one who destroyed most of those people in the wilderness. I want to know who you are. I want the truth. And Martin Luther is wrestling with God, saying, I want to know the truth. The Psalms, brothers and sisters, help us wrestle with God reverently. And I urge you to pray the Psalms. God knows that sometimes we want to wrestle with him, and so he gives us the opportunity to do so in God-honoring ways. As Martin Luther is wrestling with God, reading his Bible and aware of his sin, as he contemplates eternity, he comes across Romans 1.16. Turn your Bibles to Romans 1.16. Of course, we know that the gospel is contained in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul did not plant the church at Rome. It had already gotten started after people there had come to Israel during Pentecost and had seen the great things that had occurred at the original Pentecost. They went back to Rome and continued to worship the one true living God, now with Jesus Christ. And they're already there existing and worshiping. Paul writes to them to make sure they're worshiping rightly. And so in his letter to the church at Rome, he is declaring to them what the real gospel is, what is the real understanding of this person and work of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther knows that that's what Romans is about, and so he's pouring over Romans, trying to understand how this works. And so he comes to verse 16, Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it has been written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. And Martin Luther comes to the understanding that we live by faith in God. That we put our trust in him. That he will save us by himself, from himself, for himself. That the work of Christ on the cross is to do just that. To come and atone for our sins. And the work of Christ's obedience is to do just that. To provide righteousness for us. That we might have righteousness by faith. Not in and of ourselves, but what Martin Luther called the alien righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ. The only righteousness that a child of God offers before God is the righteousness of Christ. If God were to say to Martin Luther, why should I let you into my kingdom? He would say, because of the righteousness of Christ. And he began to embrace that and rejoice in that. And it changed everything in his understanding. It literally changed everything as he began to preach that, and God began to bless that. He came to understand that we're saved by faith alone. We're saved by Christ alone. And we understand these things by Scripture alone, because he understood that if we go outside of Scripture, we're going to start adding to or taking away a great deal, and that we need the objective truth of God's Word. And so those are the three things that Martin Luther particularly emphasized that we're saved simply by believing in the substitutionary work of Christ. We're saved by Christ alone. And we come to this by awareness of the Scriptures alone. Look in your bulletin. I put some quotes here from Martin Luther. There are lots of quotes of Martin Luther. I encourage you to spend some time getting to know him as we celebrate the 500th anniversary. Let me tell you, he wrote so many things that at the trial, 
his trial, they put all of his books out on a table. And the first question they asked him was, are these your books? There were so many, they didn't believe he had written that many things. There were so many tracts and so many books. And he was aware that they might have slipped something in there that was heretical and tried to claim it was his. And so he said, let me have some time. And he spent several, uh, more than an hour, going around the table, looking at everything to see. And then he turned to the emperor and said, yes, these are all my works. And there was almost a gasp in the witnesses there at the trial that he actually had written all of these things. But at the end of his life, he said this, the one thing that I've written that's worth reading is the bondage of the will. That's what he thought was worth reading if you've never read it. It's his debate with Desiderius Erasmus over the reality of being saved by grace alone through faith alone. And Desiderius Erasmus doesn't get it. And he insults Desiderius Erasmus all through the book. But at the end of the book, he compliments his opponent and says, Listen, even though you're as thick as they come, you at least understood this, that this is where the battle is raging. You at least were willing to step forward and address this very issue. On what basis is a man accepted before God? And he commends him in the last of the book that at least you drew near to ask the questions. The bondage of the will simply says that we are, we are in bondage to sin. We come into the world enemies of God. We come into the world blind. We come into the world with a broken willer. We come into the world with a broken compass pointing only to us. And God must come and fix that compass pointing to him. Martin Luther understood that. When he died, his disciples, his, several of his students, quite a few of his students, lived with him. He lived in a very large house that Frederick the Wise gave him. When he died, those students thought, you know, he had said a lot of very smart things at, table, at the dinner table. We should write them down. And so they did, and they published a book called Table Talk. That book is still available today. You can get that. You can probably find it online, I'm sure. That would be worth just going through that and reading some of the things. Here's some things that Martin Luther came to understand. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Let me put it to you another way. John Calvin says Pelagianism courses in our veins. What is Pelagianism? Religiosity. Trying to gain God's attention and favor by your religion. But Martin Luther says no. What we need is the righteousness of Christ. We need the righteousness of Christ to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Because the devil's going to come back and beat you up over that again and again and again. He's going to bring your sins to your remembrance again and again and again. And Martin Luther says that's the time to preach the gospel to yourself anew. It is true. He says we should tell the devil, we should agree with him when the devil tells us about our sins. We should agree with him. But then cling to the cross of Christ. All the cunning of the devil is exercised in trying to tear us away from the word of God. And how many of us can testify to the truth of that? And Martin Luther saw that in his day, people weren't reading. And so he himself translated the Bible into German. And many others began to translate it into the local language as a result of that. Getting people to read the Word of God, that we might be able to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, against the devil. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ, and must take matters into our own hands. The idea again here that God is at war with us, but in fact, we have more than peace with God through Christ Jesus. To understand the gospel is to understand that the wrath of God has been extinguished. If you're not familiar with that, that's the very subject of Ephesians chapter 2. Listen, the wrath of God has been extinguished. Your wrath against God has not been extinguished. Every time we sin, it's a demonstration that we're still upset with God in some way. There's still something about God that we're not all that happy about. All of our sin is simply the flare-up, like one of those fake candles at birthday things. Sometimes you try to blow it out and it keeps coming back, a trick candle. Our sin keeps flaming up within us. And our sin is just our rebellion against God. But God 
has no flame of wrath against us. It's been thoroughly extinguished. His wrath was real, and it was thoroughly vented upon Christ. And the cup was emptied, and God has no more wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we must come to understand that. But the evil one comes, the serpent, the devil, comes and lies to us. And as we see our sin, he reminds us that God is holy. And we're to remind ourselves that God is holy and just. And those things kiss in the gospel. Listen to that again. We're to remind ourselves when we see our sin that God is holy and God is just. Those two things kiss in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every man must do two things. He must do his own believing and his own dying. Martin Luther understood that God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters who believe through Christ Jesus. And we must each come to understand that ourselves. And then he says this, I love this, as he comes to understand the completed work of Christ. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Amen. Amen. God does not need your good works. Our good works, the only good works that matter, are the completed works of Jesus Christ. And yet the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, God does call good works in us. You remember Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our neighbor is looking for those good works. True humility does not know that it is humble. If it did, it would be proud from the contemplation of so fine a virtue. If that makes no sense to you, spend some time contemplating it this afternoon. That's Luke 18. That's a one-sentence summary by Martin Luther of Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee thought he was right with God and thought he was doing things well and thought God was pleased with him. But the tax collector, standing far off, unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven and beating his breast, cries out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Martin Luther's life changed as a result of coming to understand the gospel and being converted. And that is always the case. The gospel had been lost a long time, and there was great rejoicing in rediscovering the gospel. In Second Chronicles 34, I commend it to you this afternoon. In Second Chronicles 34, we read about the last good king. The last good king was King Josiah. After him, two of his sons and two of his grandsons become king. They are all dreadful men. The first one rules for three months and is replaced. The second one rules for 11 years and is replaced. The third one rules for three months and is replaced. The fourth one rules for 11 years and then his children are killed in front of him and then he's blinded. And then the temple is torn down. And that's how Judah goes out of existence in 586. But good King Josiah, the last good king, is very mindful of serving God and of the need of reformation in his day. And while he is serving God and reforming the land and they're refurbishing the temple, they discover a lost book of the Bible. They discover a holy scripture. The Jewish tradition is that it's the book of Deuteronomy. They discover a lost book of the Bible and they bring it to good King Josiah and they say, look, a book of Moses. We didn't even know it existed. We didn't even know there, there was one. It's not like it's just a copy. We didn't know this book existed. And so they read it, and they repent, and then they do what it says. They read it, they repent, and they do what it says. God would have us to do that today. How do you lose a book of the Bible? You stop reading it. They hadn't read that book the day before they lost it. They stopped reading it. What are we to do today? Number one, read your Bible with a teachable spirit. Be willing to change your mind and your behaviors. We need to come to God and ask him to write his law on our hearts. Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes Mysteries, says this in book one. It is a capital mistake 
to theorize before one has sufficient data. Invariably, one begins to twist the data to suit theories rather than adjust theories to suit facts. Listen to that again. It's a capital mistake. To theorize before one has sufficient data. Invariably, one begins to twist the data to suit the theory rather than adjust the theory to suit the facts. We must come to God and learn the facts of who he is, of what he's like, and what the gospel of Jesus Christ is like, and what we're like, and our condition upon entering this world, and our relationship with God outside of Christ and inside of Christ. We must read the Bible. The second thing we can do is to understand that understanding is not sufficient. Oh, if I could open up your brains and write that on them. Understanding that understanding is not sufficient. You must be born again. You must be born again. The lady that I referred to at the beginning of the sermon went to Ichabod Spencer and she said, I understand the gospel. I know the truths, the alien righteousness of Christ. I understand the elements of the gospel. But she had enough sense to know that she was not converted that she did not possess holy affections. And her pastor prayed with her and pled with her, and then one day she, reading that hymn, was converted. And God melted her heart from stone to flesh, and she knew the difference. You must be born again with a new heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. Understand that understanding is not sufficient. What else can we do? We can expect opposition and error and hostility. Martin Luther certainly saw it. Others saw it before him, and since then, we can expect opposition and error and hostility and trust in Christ to strengthen us in every circumstance. Let goods and kindred go. Martin Luther writes in the last stanza of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. What does he mean, let goods and kindred go? This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. He means... He came up against a lot of opposition, including among his genetic family. Let goods and kindred go. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Christ daily. What else can we do? We can boldly and humbly proclaim the truth. Boldly and humbly proclaim the truth. Paul publicly corrects Peter when Peter will not repent concerning Peter's misunderstanding of the gospel. Peter had an understanding of the gospel. It was corrupted by men in his day after the resurrection of Christ. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul goes to him, tries to get him to repent. He won't, and Paul rebukes him publicly. And God grants Peter repentance. If Peter could corrupt the gospel, so can we. Boldly and humbly proclaim the truth and plead with God that we would continue to be teachable. What else can we do? We can hope in God. His truth is marching on. His truth is marching on. There are people being converted. It isn't like you hear on Christian radio that large numbers of people are being converted and that all of South Korea is converted. Nothing like that is the case. But his people are being converted. There are people still being converted. Let's hope in God. Let's pray regarding people here at River City and pray for our genetic family and pray for this region and pray for regions beyond. And specifically, let's be in prayer that preachers would rediscover the gospel. That preachers would rediscover the gospel and rightly proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. And then to flee to Christ. The things I've been telling you so far were for Christians, but if you're not a Christian, to flee to Christ. Some are being saved against all odds. Some are being saved against all odds. Some of you know that one of my favorite passages in Scripture is Mark chapter 5. And Mark chapter 5 is the Gadarene demoniac. He's demon-possessed and out of his mind. They can't bind him with chains. He doesn't wear clothes. He hangs out with dead people. And he cuts himself and hurts himself. Christ comes. Gadarene demoniac has one understanding. I cannot flee from Christ. Therefore, I better flee to Christ. Other than that, he's out of his mind. But that's enough. 
and he flees to Christ, throws himself down in front of Christ. And God marvelously saves him. There is a voice of sovereign grace. The sacred word has roared. O ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. My soul obeys the almighty call and runs to this relief. I would believe thy promise, Lord. O help my unbelief. To that dear fountain of thy blood, incarnate God, I fly. Here let me wash my spotted soul from crimes of deepest dye. Stretch out thine arm, victorious king. My reigning sins subdue. Drive the old dragon from his seat with his apostate crew. Guilty, weak, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Savior and my all. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you that your kingdom is still marching on. We do praise you and thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, as you are. That you are still revealing yourself to men and women, young and old. And our prayer is that you would do that in large numbers here in southeastern North Carolina. That you would save many. We do pray specifically, God, that you would cause us to read and to read with understanding and to conform our understanding to what we read. Lord, we pray that you would bless the ministers of this region to be converted for the ones that are not. We ask, God, in your mercy that the gospel would be set forth rightly, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and merits of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would bless us to see our own desperate need to stay close to the shepherd as we contemplate good King Asa and as we are transparent about our sin of this past week. Lord, as we prayed for Kyle, earlier we pray for each of us that you would surround us with godly companions that would stimulate and encourage us to love and good deeds. Lord God, cause us to be such godly companions to others. And in your mercy, Lord, deliver us from the companionship of fools. Strengthen us in the pilgrim's path. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I remind you of our evening Bible study tonight and urge you to come to be a part of that. I look forward to that time very much with you. Will you stand now to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.